Hey folks, like the show? You can subscribe on SoundCloud, you can subscribe on iTunes, you can subscribe on Overcast, Pocket Cast, Downcast, iCatcher, Pod Wrangler, Podcast Addict, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn Radio, or Podbean, or really just about anywhere you get podcasts. Save yourself a trip to the web and subscribe today. This episode is brought to you by Horizon Books, serving Seattle's book-loving community for over 47 years with the best collection of used books in Cascadia. Mention UpZones at the register today for a 10% discount. This episode is brought to you by Horizon Books, and this is UpZones. Things are changing. Things are changing. You have to elect yourself, Things are changing. Things are changing. What's up, Upzoners, Upzonians? Happy Monday. Welcome to another episode of a podcast that we're dedicating to documenting the changes in Seattle and the Seattle region. You know, we're almost done here with the first season, and I hope everyone's having a good time. I hope folks are learning about the people involved and either affecting or documenting the changes in this city as much as I have. Another week goes by, another guest blows my mind. Michael Hobbs was on this week, independent journalist writing for the Huffington Post. Fairly long track record of writing about systematic changes and systematic structures that define everything from rent prices, which we will talk a great deal about, to you know obesity in America. Uh, an interesting article he wrote about gay loneliness we talked for so long. Normally, I don't really edit podcasts other than the occasional ums and ahs, but this was just far, far too much, and uh, we had to pick the hits. But I hope you'll enjoy uh, where we did. We, you know, most thread of the conversation was pretty interesting. For the second week in a row, we had a table pounder. Michael, if you're listening, um, I appreciate your passion, but that table was made of oak. It vibrates very loudly. He made an interesting point about uh, what I would call lefty or activist infighting. Most revolutions degenerate into infighting only after they've won. Uh, we really haven't won anything. So what's the direction that folks who want an urban America, want denser cities, more affordable transit, etc., etc.? You've heard it all before 17 times, literally, on this show. What's the direction we take? There does seem to be a lot of tactical critique. I think that's counterproductive. I've said that before. We're all trying different methods to get to the promised land. But it is interesting to hear someone whose approach is pretty vastly different than mine when it comes to um, first causes tends to agree that we're a little too busy sniping at one another. It's, it's really easy to say, oh, that branch of the movement is not for me. Therefore, they're bad. Therefore, they're counterproductive. And I'm not so sure that that's really the case most of the time. And the other thing that Michael talked about that I thought was really, really interesting was just have fewer fucking opinions about everything, America. And I'm the biggest, biggest offender here. I'll raise my hand right now. And I think I'm going to take this conversation to heart and actually try and wait 15 seconds before... I think something, let alone post on social media about it or argue someone about it. What are the facts? What's the context? What does the primary source have to say? And if you haven't read the primary source, are you qualified to even have an opinion, let alone put it in public? 
how is that impacting the prior problem we talked about? If everyone's got a hot take and they're so, so ready to score points, you know, social justice points or whatever, on a take that they're not even fully informed on. And again, I, I'm, I'm the worst at this. So I, I just, I'm thinking this through out loud with you guys right now. I'm not really saying it's anyone's problem or fault. But maybe we just agree to do this together, right? What's the, what do the experts say? What do 10 people who were eyewitnesses to the incident say? What is the history? Before we weigh in and have strong opinions that are based on a little more than gut or instinct or ideology, maybe we can do better. Well, we can start by listening to Michael Hobbs, who did a great job. We should talk about this because the article that I'm on deadline for is about the housing crisis in Boise. And like... Fucking everywhere is having a housing crisis now. And it's the same. It's exactly the same thing. Like, they they have watched what has happened in San Francisco and here and everywhere else and have decided to do nothing differently. Like, is anyone doing, any, anyone doing anything better? I mean, we Seattle on a relative scale is actually doing pretty well. <laughs> well, for, yeah, considering the amount of growth, right, that we're yeah. having. Yeah. It's like our ratio is like, whatever, one housing unit to every two workers, which isn't enough, but it's like... In San Francisco, it's 1 to 10. But on a relative American scale, we're doing relatively well. But that's actually the most depressing thing right. is that we're actually one of the leading cities on this housing stuff. And right. we're not doing enough. Not even right. anywhere close. Yeah, my, yeah I'm, I'm just addicted to painkillers. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> at least it's not heroin. Yeah. Right. yeah. I mean, that's basically the stage that yeah. we're at. So thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. Are you, are you Seattle native? Yes, I grew up here. But then I left when I was 21 and yeah. did not return until I was 35. So, yeah, you've been in, like, living in Europe, living the high life. Yeah, I was a year, six months in Sydney, a year in London, six years in Copenhagen, and then five years in Berlin. Well, tell me about that. What's, what caused you to take that little odyssey? I went there chasing cheap university. Mm-hmm. They don't, I, I remember when I was looking at master's degrees, Columbia, which I never would have gotten into anyway, was $60,000 a year. Yeah. And then I looked at master's degrees in London, and London's really expensive to live in, but my tuition was $3,000. And so I moved to London and I got subsidized housing right in the middle of London, which was like 600 bucks a month. And I could like, it was like this amazing adventure and I could afford to do it. And then I came back to the U.S. and I was extremely bored. And then I started looking around and it turned out that in Denmark, master's degrees are free. They aren't anymore, but they were then. And so I was like, well, forget it. I'm just going to move to Denmark. So you were just like a bargain shopper. You were just like, like bargain shopper, dude. It worked out really well. I mean, I was just chasing. So in London, I studied political and legal theories, like philosophy. And then in London, I studied European studies. So it's like the two least useful degrees imaginable. Right. Like I am utterly unemployable if this right. whole journalism thing falls out from under me. Right. So I just kind of did what I wanted to do. I wanted to live in those countries. I wanted to study. I wanted to not have this. I had a really cheesy corporate job at Microsoft before I moved to Denmark. I wanted to not do that anymore. Where did you work in Microsoft? Uh, I was I was on MSN. Okay. Website. This is like peak Paris Hilton time. Like all of our headlines, <laughs> we were writing like ten tips to lose weight drinking Diet Coke. It was like the worst of clickbait right. of that era. Right. And so this is probably like oh four. Yeah, I left in 05. I left for Denmark in 05, and then I didn't return until a week before the 2016 election. Oh, wow. So, like, my oh, big wow. my You big missed time. all the good part. I know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I left when it was old Seattle, right. and then I moved back when it was new Seattle. Right. And, like, all of the Denny's were, like, yoga studios. Right. And everything had changed. But I came back kind of liking it because I'd been living in Europe and dealing with transit and biking everywhere and all this kind of it's stuff. It's a little more... Like, there, there are... I had a guest, my second ever guest on this show 
Stephanie Stephanie Stokes Oliver, mm-hmm. Seattle writer, more of a, a, a almost like a an editor and a curator who had put together an assembly of black excellence in, in like in like like Frederick Douglass to like Barack Obama kind of thing, you know. But one of the things she said as an African American is that she's like, let's go, come on, Amazon, let's go, bring it, bring the change, bring make. What this do you like, mean? Well, I think that there's a there's a tendency to associate like a lot of African Americans with not liking change in mm. the city because and let's be honest that's who gets displaced right is formerly redlined areas but she was like no like yeah let's fix that problem but like let's let's make this a big city let's actually have like something to be proud of and a place where we can have economic benefits so that was an interesting take on on it i mean what ha- what is happening in seattle is the same thing that is happening in every other city and more acutely in the bay area but also now in places like reno and boise and orlando of basically how can cities grow it has become impossible for cities in america to grow equitably it's amazing yeah. to me yeah. that you have these protest movements in places like pittsburgh saying we don't want amazon hq2 yeah because people are gonna get displaced no one's gonna get those jobs etc and those people are right. Yeah. They are correct that yeah. it will be very bad for them if Amazon comes to Pittsburgh. They're correct because the city, if the city could catch it, if the city could catch the ball, actually it would be good for everybody. Exactly. But we're at this point where we kind of know the city isn't going to. Yeah, I mean, right. I don't because know no city ever has, right? But no city ever has, and especially in this time when there's this lag between getting the jobs, having the growth, and building the houses. And in that lag is when all the, ho- the the housing prices go nuts. Yeah. And so it's going to be, if it goes to Pittsburgh or whatever, it's going to be five years before the city is ready to grow, is able to grow. Or 10. And, or 10. And yeah. in those five or 10 years, the housing prices are going to triple, and then you're going to have the same thing that you have here, where it's like, oh, all you can build is luxury units. Everyone's right. going to fight them. Right. You're going to get these little drip, drip, drip of affordable stuff, but you're going to be in the same place that all these other city- cities are in. And mm-hmm. so... It is bananas, objectively, that there are people who are saying, don't bring jobs to our city. But it makes perfect sense that they're saying that. Yeah. It's just a bananas well, situation. It's almost like a little Russian doll thing where, like, yeah, it's bananas. And then under that Russian doll, it makes perfect sense. But actually, under that Russian doll, it doesn't make sense again because, really, we should just be building more housing. It needs to be automatic. <laughs> right. I mean, yeah. I think the the main mistake that political leaders have made in the last 10 years is that they've made... They've created this nickel and dime process where every single project has to be approved specifically. I mean, you see on Twitter these yeah. like yeah, these threads yeah. of be like, I'm at a housing hearing for a two-story home where they're going to build another garage. And it's like, why is there even a hearing for this? Why can't people just submit the paperwork, approved, done? Whether the neighbors like it or not, well, yeah, it happens. That's, but yeah. ha- somehow the neighbors have been able to hijack this entire process. And the politicians refuse to push back and say, actually... We're going to design the processes so that you cannot interfere with them. That's very interesting. I don't think I've ever uh, thought about it that way in terms of how you build a city. It's like it must be one of the only laws, legal structures more generally that works that way. Right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I was thinking the other day about how the I think it was the governor of Arizona just sort of decided that Uber was going to test drive all of its autonomous vehicles in Phoenix, like which ended up killing somebody, which like this dangerous technology. So it's like. The governor, sort of, no public process, no community hearings, no anything. It's just like, all right, this dangerous thing is going to happen in our cities. And yet, it's like, oh, I want to build a garage in my house. It's like, well, we're going to have to have seven community hearings. Yeah. And somebody's going to decide what the outside looks like. Should it be blue or green? Why is it like this? I mean, Let me throw something at you, right? So as, a, as an avowed uh, free marketeer, that's to give, to give you background on my politics, but anti-capitalist. Mm. 
wait, wait, okay. wait, wait, wait for it. Wait for it. That's capitalism. The problem here is capitalism. The problem, and the way I'm defining capitalism is business is good. It's humans selling other humans things they want for money, right? But capitalism is the social, legal, and economic privileging of ownership. Right. Right? You can extract. There's an ism that comes with the capital, right? And what capitalism says is if I own a home and you rent, intrinsically, I have more influence over the process. Yeah. And so capitalism hijacks the democratic process. And so homeowners get to say what, because they own this plot X, they get to say what happens over plot Y. And they've gotten used to this amount of privilege that it's yes. like, oh, I don't like this thing going up next door to me. There's a tree that's going to get cut down. I'm going to have to walk 10 feet for parking or whatever. I have control now over the city. Yeah, I yeah. should be able to have a say in this yeah. incredibly arcane yeah. and boring and silly process of if something fits the zoning, it should just get built. And if you want to send a letter to your congressman, like I send letters to my congressman all the time. I don't get to stop them from doing their jobs. Right. right I mean, right. we have this thing where I, I heard somebody the other day talk about democracy as everybody's riding the bus and anybody can reach up and pull on the brake. You've got 50 people riding the bus and anybody can pull on well, the brake. Well, then, then democracy must be broken. Then. Well, that's, that's the, I mean, this is the whole thing is that we spend a lot of time arguing with NIMBYs and we spend a lot of time trying to talk people out of these entrenched, ridiculous views of like, oh, it's going to destroy neighborhood character. And yes, those people are full of shit. But the bigger full of shit is the political process that allows them to control yeah, it. This is, yeah. this is literally what we hire politicians to do, yeah. is to weigh competing interests. Right. If somebody wants to open a zoo that's going to bring joy to millions of children, and one neighbor goes, oh, the lions are going to roar at five in the morning and wake me up. Politicians go, sorry. Sorry, neighbor. Yeah. It just, sometimes the cookie crumbles like that. You're yeah. just going to have to wake up early or move or whatever. Or whatever, yeah. But housing is the only area where our politicians refuse to say there's a vocal minority who is angry about this. Sorry, everybody. What it's is, just going to happen anyway. What are they doing in Europe? That, that, I mean, they're doing, it a, they're doing it a little better, right? Ooh, I mean, it depends, of course, totally on the country. I mean, most European countries, they have more dense housing anyway. They, they, they did it right. Tur they did it, yeah. And they're the breaking up apartments. They have really strict height. I love in Copenhagen, if you stand on top of the roofs, every single building stops at exactly the same inch. It's like if you go to a six-story building, it's like you look over the city, it's like to the inch, every single building is wow. exactly the same. So they're height. actually they're actually tightly zoned. But they they're just, they're zoned, just, yeah. it's just a much higher zone than, than ours. Yeah, it's much higher zone. It's much more dense. And I think that it's easier to break units up. A lot of people, especially in London... All these like two bedroom apartments have then been broken up into two one bedroom apartments that uh -huh. then get broken up into four studio apartments. Uh -huh, uh -huh. And so all my friends in London live in these like former attics, former basements, like all the available space. You can just kind of do up. what you want. Yeah. yeah but yeah. London is having the same thing that we're having here, where there's a huge debate about how to build homes. You can't build tall because people have protected views of St. Paul's Cathedral, which is completely bananas. That there's like there are yeah. parks where it's like you must be able to see St. Paul's from this park. And so there's a whole like tranche where you can't build above a couple stories because, oh, this park won't be able to see St. Paul's anymore. Right. And everyone's saying, like, we're a city of 20 million people. Like, eventually we're going to have to go above two stories, everybody. So there are neighborhoods where that's happening. Oh. But the, the best thing about London, and I think this is a model that we need to have here, is that the mayor of London can overrule neighborhoods. So over and over and over again, somebody proposes a project, the neighbors freak out, 
the local councilors, the borough councilors say, you're right, we won't build that. Then the mayor steps in and he goes, nope, sorry, we're going to build it anyway. And so this is Boris Johnson is like the worst person alive. Yeah, of course. But yeah. as the mayor of London, he was actually really good at shutting down these neighborhood things and using his authority well, yeah, and saying yeah. it's going to get built anyway. That's one thing. I don't, I, I'm no conservative. I kind of spit when I say the word. Yeah. Mm. It's the one thing they get right is that you got to build, man. You got to build. You got to build. Yeah. And this whole idea of like with SBA 27, which of course just tragically died, local control is fine, but there has to be local control with accountability. You don't right. get to just not build, like, you don't get to just not build stuff. Yeah. If, if, if your city agrees that, like, okay, we're going to add 10,000 people in the next 10 years, how do we want to do it? Do we want to do one big high rise? Do we want to do small ADUs? Fine debate, whatever. But you're going to add that many people. And if you're right. not on track to add that many people, right. we are going to take away your control. What brought you into this? I mean, you're you're, you're quite passionate about this. And I follow you on Twitter. And, and, I, and I'm extremely tedious. Blog, yeah. Tweeting about this all the time. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> no, but it's, I mean, someone's got to do it. Right? <laughs> what got you? What put you to this kind of corner of the universe? I'm not a free market guy, but I'm I'm a structures guy. The issues that fascinate me the most are the ones where it is impossible to do the right thing. And I think that what we've created now is a situation on housing where at every level it is impossible to do the right thing. So for a mayor to approve these projects, they're going to get kicked out of office immediately because 80% of the city is homeowners and homeowners lose their minds if they're going to lose their parking and they right. mobilize. Right. Council members, it's the same thing. And it's bad incentives all the way down. And right. I think... These are the, I mean, just because I'm a nerd, I'm interested in this stuff, but it's also just, it seems to me anecdotally like we're drifting into a country where there are more and more and more of these problems where no one is kind of evil at any level, mm -hmm. but nothing gets solved. Well, it's like, like the Dan Ariely, you familiar with Dan Ariely? Yeah. Predictably Irrational, right? Yeah. He, he, he did the experiment where nobody cheats for money. Right. Very few. People who cheat for money are, are generally actually bad people. But almost everyone will cheat for tokens, even if the tokens can be traded for money. <laughs> right? As soon as we can convince ourselves yeah. that <laughs> it's not for money, we'll do it. Right? Yeah. <laughs> when you remove yourself from the accountability chain, or even if you don't know, you know, maybe very sincerely, a lot of these folks don't think of themselves as part of the problem. Right. The homeowners, right? They're just protecting their view, which is, right. is so fucking selfish. But it's... But it's but you know they, they don't see it as as that and uh, yeah and it's yeah. understandable like if I if all of my wealth was tied up in my home right and something happens which is in and of itself the structural problem which is exactly America. a structural problem so it's yeah. like if my view of the space needle adds fifty thousand dollars to my home right. somebody's gonna build something it's like well I need that money for retirement this right. is I'm really worried about this and so it's understandable that people fight right but it just sucks that structurally we're not able to in some way. I don't know, compensate them in some way, counteract it in some way, give them also the expectation when they purchase that asset that it may drop precipitously in value. So much of it is that people feel like they're entitled well, to that, have their home price go up all the that time. That gets into capitalism, right? Capitalism is effectively a, a social structure. Right. It's, it's a set of expectations. Set up to hedge downside risk on ownership. Sure. Right. The stock market, right? You can write off losses in ways that if you just lose your job, you certainly can't, right? Yeah. It's very, it's actually interesting, except that it's, that it's tragic. But you're a tech guy. Why did you get interested in this? Well, so the answer to that is I'm a tech guy, but I'm a policy guy. I have the history working in the Obama administration. 
And uh, while mostly what I've done is tech and telecom policy, I spent 18, uh, about 18 months doing um, economic development in the Department of Commerce. And when they say economic development, I know most people think of like sending money abroad, but this is like literally infrastructure. It was a lot of it uh, in the Obama administration was around clusters. So um, if there's a biotech cluster in Boston, how do we build an entire economic boom around that so that everybody, you know, right. being, I think, a little further, frankly, to the left and then uh, it was like th th their thing was like use the growth to lift everyone kind of thing, like literal classic neoliberal, right? Versus now, I, I promise you that that department is being used to send money to do Republican donors. Right? I have, would have no uh, question. Yeah, but yeah. so I did that and, and, I, and I got to see, I got to see what challenges a city faces when it's, when it's building, when it's growing, or usually, frankly, when it's not building. And then I came here and I come out of the, spoken word poetry mm. like that's kind of oh for years like that's i've done i've organized that you know and so many poets i've seen over the last four years be displaced some of the best poets in seattle have are have had to or are having to leave seattle because they can't fucking afford it right yeah and you now take those two parts of my background it's like i know what cities are going through and i see it on a personal level so that people i, I actually more than anything the 21 to 38 year old tech worker is actually the most powerful sleeping force in favor of good urban policy if somebody or some several somebodies can organize and activate them could tap into that why because they're actually more at least on relative terms they're more progressive than they are conservative they are they they don't want expensive rents either right right yeah and because of the educational privilege they have they actually understand systems they and they're not homeowners yet so there's no vested interest and there's only upside. But I don't know who's the guy to do it. Well, first of all, two things. Last time I was in Madrid, this was years ago, I remember the trains were shut down because there was a huge march for housing affordability. Mm -hmm. And I was like 25 years old or something. And I was like, what? Housing? Like rents? Why would we march about rents? Rents have nothing to do with politics. Like there's nothing politicians can do about rents. And of course uh. my friends were like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a lot they can do about rents, and I do actually think that like a march for housing, whether it's led by the tech people or the displaced or everybody who's or everybody, that's in, the coalition, right? Getting a huge, I think people in the streets really angry about rents mm -hmm. should be a political, angry in the streets, direct action type movement. I mm -hmm. think a lot of that energy right now is being there's a lot of infighting about sort of what the future should look like, which I think is a huge waste of time. But if there's a coalition that can be formed of renters and some homeowners and the rich and the poor, everybody pissed off about rising rents who make the argument that it is political, it is controllable, we are really pissed off about it, we expect you to do something about it, thousands of people in the streets, I think that would send a really powerful message. I mean, right now, we don't have pressure on our politicians the way that we do for other things. There's quote unquote pressure on politicians right now over gun rights because of these Parkland kids, which mm -hmm. is great. Yeah, yeah. But of course the pressure, that whole idea of so-and-so is under pressure is a socially constructed thing, right? A lot of the reason why they're under pressure for Parkland is because the media finally is covering anger over guns, right? Mm -hmm. There's been black people angry about guns for decades. Nobody covers it. There's finally attractive white kids that are mad about guns. So we're covering it and we say, politicians are under pressure for guns. What we need to do is create some sort of sense in Kuwait, huge around the country, that politicians are under pressure 
mm. on housing. Politicians mm -hmm. are not under pressure on this issue in any big way. Yeah. And what we need is for the media to cover it, we need to have large direct actions and things that are incredibly visible so that headlines say, Mayor so-and-so, under pressure on housing, does such-and-such. Such. Mm -hmm. That is the kind of thing that we need to build. Well, shit, that's pretty impressive. How do we get there? I think, first of all, the infighting needs to stop. It drives me insane. I don't know to what extent that's a Twitter phenomenon and to what extent that's a real phenomenon, but it's like there's a lot of burdened renters out there, and some are free market folks, and some are socialist folks, and we don't all have to agree on everything. Right. For there to be incremental improvements towards stuff we don't have to agree right. on the end goal right. that's completely fine like all revolutions are formed by people who do not agree Co on the coalitions end goal. yeah right it's always coalitions of people who basically the minute they win they all hate each other and right. like that's fine right. you've, you've gotten the the forward m motion and then you break up into your constituent parts right. what we're doing now is we're breaking up into our constituent parts before we've actually won anything yeah. so it's like whether you like so what's the lightning rod what's the what's the um what is the shared interest I mean, is it just rent? Is that it? Rent? Or is yeah. it is it housing maybe a little more broadly? Like, just housing? I think a lot of it is just, I think the message has to be, first, legalize housing, which they already sell t-shirts that say that, which is great. Yeah. We need rents. The rent is too high. We need the rents rent to come down. The rent is too damn high. Like, <laughs> that, I mean, I think that, I forget who that was, but I think he sucked. But he was right. Well, he was the guy in New York running for, I can't remember his name, went out of my head, but he, he was running for governor of New York. And I think he, he had no real like executive chops like he wasn't right. he couldn't probably run a race right let alone a state but but he was right right <laughs> the rent's too damn high i mean you mentioned earlier artists being pushed out of cities so i wrote this article last year about gay loneliness about the way that suicide rates are still up to 10 times higher among lgbt folks than they are among straight folks mm. and one of the this was completely not about rents at all i was interviewing one of these researchers and he says he does uh hiv work for people, young gay guys living in New York City, and he says he can't reach them anymore because they're all out in the suburbs. Who's placed? They're all. He says they're like an hour outside in Queens. None of them, of course, are in Chelsea or the you know the village or these other gay neighborhoods because what's rent in Chelsea now? It's like two thousand bucks a month. Mm -hmm. So they're in like deep space Queens. They're like an hour and a half away. There's not enough of them in any particular suburb for them to form a cluster. Mm. And so you have all these gay kids that are moved there from whatever tragic homophobic town that they're from mm -hmm. they finally sort of made it they've ended up in new york city they can't afford the rent and they also can't find a community mm -hmm. and so it's like this is a tiny blip of all the other ways that rising rents affect people yeah. but it's like we should think of rising That's rents as like it's a tsunami it yeah. affects everybody yeah. and it affects every you know it affects businesses it affects mothers having longer commutes it affects young gay guys it affects slam poets i mean there's no one who isn't affected by rising rents, and it's a humanitarian catastrophe. And I, we need to think of it like it that. It goes up the chain. If you yeah. if you have a, an, you know a graduate degree and you work at Microsoft, the, the social expectation thirty five years ago, twenty five years ago, was okay. I can buy a house now. Can't anymore. Right. Yeah. So even up the chain. I mean, that that's when you know it's bad, right? Right. When the when the like MBAs are right. when can't the buy MBAs houses. MBAs are mad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that, just just think about it that way, right? Um, <laughs> So, yeah, no, I, 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 I totally agree. So what do you got coming up? Uh, I have a podcast. Get out of here. It's called You're Wrong About. And what? every week we talk about something that people have misremembered. So we did Anita Hill. We've done Monica Lewinsky and Matthew Shepard and Stockholm Syndrome and Alpha Males. When you say misremembered, you mean the, the, the 
the eyewitness misremembers something or you mean history? Like we as a society, like for example, Anita Hill did not come forward with allegations about Clarence Thomas. She was subpoenaed. Interesting. A lot of people don't know that. She was very reluctant to come forward. Um, For our Monica Lewinsky episode, I read the entire star report. Mm -hmm. And so we go into the entire narrative of actually what happened between Monica and Bill, which is really interesting. So it's that kind of thing of just kind of trying to set the record straight on things that we all have these like murky ideas in our heads, but then we're trying to explain what actually happened and do some actual research. And I have some. I have one it. for you. Okay. Is it Berenstein Bears? Oh God. Or Berenstein Bears? <laughs> That's what I want to know. I'm not getting anywhere near this. One. <laughs> okay. All right, man. We like to end every show with a segment we call "If you care about, then you should." Oh man. Fill in the blanks. I know. You know what I've been like worrying about lately is. I think if you care about something, read the primary documents. Oh. I think that I have this theory that many of the problems in contemporary society are created by people having opinions on things before they get the full information. Yeah. Oh, this, yeah. Is mo- this is the worst with like things like school shootings and stuff where it's like two minutes after the shooting, we're like, oh, like it's a Muslim dude, then everyone freaks out. And it's like, oh, it's a white dude, then everyone freaks out. Right. As opposed to just being like, I'm not going to say anything about this. Right. Until we right. know the full, if that's a week, then it's a week. I'm just right. not going to like have opinions on this. But I think it's like that for a lot of other issues too, whether it's housing or a political candidate. It's one of the things I learned from living in Europe so long where people are much more careful with what they have opinions on. Mm. I remember so many conversations with Danish people where I would just be like, oh, like, you know, what do you think about raising the minimum wage? And like, you know, I haven't looked at it. And that's Nobody it. That's says that here. Nobody <laughs> says that here. People say people have to have an opinion. And yeah. You're and I, right. think, I think it's okay to just like leave your mind open on stuff, even stuff that seems obvious. Even right. if it's like this celebrity caught on video saying this thing. It's okay to be like, well, I haven't seen the context. Right. I don't know very much about the celebrity. I'm actually going to wait and right. just like, not weigh in on this until like if what happens is what it looks like fine but sometimes things are not what they look like i'm just going to wait it's very difficult and as a i mean one of the things if you want to know if you care about an issue read the primary documents get the context i love that i love that yeah i i struggle i mean i'm not always i'm not always doing this but (laughs) but (laughs) i mean one of the things that Twitter is very bad for, and Facebook probably is too, is that it's so easy to blast off like a little thought, right? Like a little quip. You don't right. have to like, just waiting like 15 minutes and being, oh, well, do I really think that maybe more information is gonna come in? Right. It's so easy to get that out. And once it's out, opinions, you can kind of see opinions starting to form on Twitter. Yeah, and we're so numb that we, we actually let most of it go by, but, but that quip opinion you had might impact you know, 10 people. Yeah. Terribly, right? Especially if it's wrong. <laughs> Especially if, exactly. you're, if you're based on uh, just bad data or... And it you affects know. your, I think, it affects your idea of everyone is saying this thing. Everyone is saying that right. this is an outrage. Well, 80, if 80% of those people haven't read the primary documents, 80% of those people are not very smart about the issue. About the issue, You yeah. just formed an opinion that a lot of smart people have this opinion, so you should probably follow them. But actually, those people are not that smart on it. Because so, they haven't read the documents. Yeah, yeah, it just it just adds to this like river of just bad information yeah. of that you get this sense of like, well, the people that I kind of get my opinions from, and we all do this, right? You get your information from your peers, you get your opinions from your peers. It's just this like polluted waters where yeah. we're all just down there getting opinions that we don't really know why we have them. 
<laughs> so that was like my New Year's resolution this year was to not was to just not have as many opinions. I love that. Michael Hobbs. Thank you. Thanks for being on the show. <laughs> Let's stay in touch. That was Michael Hobbs. Check him out on his podcast, You're Wrong About, with his co-host, Sarah Marshall. Mike and Sarah are journalists obsessed with the past. Each week, they talk about an event, a person, or trend that's been misremembered. Again, that's Michael Hobbs of You're Wrong About. Thanks to Anthony McPherson for his dope poetry sample. Thanks to the Subcons for their music. Thanks to Naboo for sound engineering. This has been a Cascadia Underground production, and I am your host, Ian Martinez. My favorite. See you next week. Thank you.